the favorite topic in the world is going to speak on today. So um, we can get started. But it's good that you stay with me through this whole thing. First John 3, 5 says, um, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. That's where we're beginning. Maybe this topic is not the foremost in your mind, but it's one we must consider and obviously consider frequently. The last time I spoke about what Jesus says to the world as it faces an unending series of pandemic and wars and racial strife and fear and anxiety and sexual immorality and gender confusion and political turmoil and escalation of false religion and perverse worldviews and lest I forget the rampant denial of biblical truth in all aspects of life. It was a very encompassing message. But today, I want to ask this question that people ask. What's so horrible about sin? What's so bad about it? What's the big deal? Well, we know that, other than the fact that it separates your body from <laughs> So we know sin abounds. But it doesn't want to be motivated to put it to death. Okay, I get it, you say. But while many people think that all these problems I just listed are caused only by the failures of others, while they themselves, with pure and spotless hearts or and minds, are blameless. Others say that all these ills can be fixed with more of your money and more education and more cancellations and more laws. But Christians believe that the root of all these issues is sin, our sin, even my sin. But we don't like the word sin. Nobody talks about sin anymore. Or this, okay, maybe I did disobey what God said. What's the big deal? Who did I hurt? Who suffers? This is my topic today. I want to explore what makes sin so terrible. You with me? <laughs> we know sin is not measuring up. It's missing the mark. It's disobeying God. But I want to begin with this interesting, broader question. Which areas or, or what areas of God's creation ever disobey him? What parts of God's creation ever deny his commands, reject his commands? So I want to start with the material, physical world. Think of non-living material matter like rocks, water, iron, and things like atoms and molecular compounds from which everything is made. Think of all the laws that govern these things for their mass and their gravity and magnetism and time and light. Do any of these things ever disobey God? Does iron ever disobey God? Does water ever disobey God? No. From the structure and energy of atoms to that of galaxies, everything in the non-living but physical material world always acts exactly as God decreed without fail. It never violates God's command. 
If these things did violate God's word, the universe could not exist as it does today. We could never send a rocket to Mars because we wouldn't know where Mars was going to be if it didn't follow the laws of gravity. Of course, there wouldn't be a Mars because nothing would hold together all of those elements. And there wouldn't be a rocket and there wouldn't be a fuel and there wouldn't be any combustion. Nothing would exist as it does. The sun wouldn't exist. Without these natural laws that God created, nothing in the material world could exist in its current form. The study of these natural laws and their application is like studying the mind of God. You figure out what is what he was thinking. And the Bible, but the Bible does give a few situations where it seems that God's natural law is set aside. What do we call these things where we think God's natural law has been set aside? What do we call that? A miracle. It's a miracle. God suspended his natural law in some way that this other thing could take place. The axe head floated. Jesus walked on the water. Something different was going on in the natural physical world. But normally, unless God does a miracle, everything acts exactly. Water always boils at this temperature. Gas always is going to expand to this pressure. I mean, everything Study the physics, study the chemistry. It's always, that's what, that's where science really excels is figuring out how these natural things work. But there's also an immaterial but natural world of things like mathematics and logic. Does math or logic ever violate God's commands? I know it's a weird thought. Does two plus two always equal four in, in base 10 according to God's law? Can the rules of logic ever fail to provide God's wisdom of logic? No, I think neither mathematics nor logic ever disobey God. If they did, then all formulas and calculations would be utterly worthless because you couldn't depend on the result that you get. So, so far we've considered these natural things, the physical and the immaterial, the, the, the material and the immaterial, and we see that nothing ever disobeys God. That, that's, a, that's an important thing to think about. Nothing ever disobeys God. And then there's the living material world of plant and the animal kingdom, other than mankind. We're setting mankind aside. But no one supposes that a tree can sin against God. Nor any other plant on land or in the ocean. Nor any animal. Together they all stand guiltless before God. Because no plant, no animal has a moral nature. They don't corrupt themselves. They don't fall short of God's design. They just live by the instinct and the pattern that God put inside them. All robins sing the song of a robin. A robin doesn't sing the song of a hawk. They, they, they follow the pattern that God gave them. They speak the sounds, they sing the, they speak the sounds and sing the songs he put inside them. But they do suffer and groan and die under the weight of man's sin. 
somehow our corruption has affected them. Then there's another world, the living, immaterial world of supernaturally created beings. Science offers us no help here. In fact, science refuses to go into this area. But the Bible indicates that God created in some time eternity past various types of angels. Most of the angels have remained obedient, but some rebelled against God. As far as we know, God immediately judged these angels corrupted by sin, and they became known as demons, enemies of God. He cast them out of heaven and condemned them to eternal destruction. It's likely that these creatures had clearly experienced the full glory of God at some point. To think about their sin, they had seen the glory of God and rebelled against it. Their judgment was immediate. He never offered them forgiveness. He never weighed a way to rescue them, to save them. But he did delay by grace their full punishment until the appointed time. He cast them down to the earth to be used as a backdrop for the glory of Jesus Christ when Jesus came to rescue his chosen. Today, by the wisdom of God, God uses their evil deeds among the lives of all flesh to result in good providence for those who belong to God and love God. We just sang the song. You make all things work together for my good, even the work of evil demons. You want to know a miracle? You take fallen angels who are cast down to earth to be a backdrop of darkness for the glory of Christ to really appear bright. And all of their work for believers, God uses for our good in some mysterious way that we don't fully comprehend. So most of God's creation never sins because it's either not alive or has no moral nature, or in the case of some of the angels, they've remained faithful. Some sins and is judged immediately. And there's one category left, that's us, human beings, who can sin and do sin continually and find pleasure in it. Because we all descended from sinful Adam, our nature is also to sin. And God is offended. Sin truly grieves him. The Bible says that he regretted creating man, which is an odd thought. But believe me, you want God to be grieved over sin. Because if God isn't grieved over sin, over evil, he would have no sense of justice. He would have no sense of love, no sense of glory if God just. But think about this. What does it say about God's estimation of man as a creature that he would be ascended? offended by our sin. I mean, if somebody, if, if an ant bit you or took away a piece of a crumb off your table, would you be offended by that ant? No, because the ant was just living out what God put in the ant. But God is offended by what we do because we are precious to him. We are made in his image. 
Can you grasp the love and expectation and accountability and dignity that God must ascribe to all human beings that he responds like this? The way we live really matters to God. The way you live really matters to God. It's really important. He sees it as vital. And God is right to respond this way. He made mankind in his own image. He made man the masterpiece of his creation, it says. He gave us abilities to think and to create and protect and to love. And he made us, he gave us a will to choose. He made us for connection with himself. He made us to enjoy him forever. But even with all these gifts and capabilities, Adam freely chose to reject God, to forsake that fellowship, to rebel against God's commands. So when a master's masterpiece rejects their creator, what does justice look like for the creator? Destroy the old vessel, make a new one, ignore the problem. No. But God is absolutely offended by our evil, wicked sin. Now think of this. In contrast to what is called when natural law is superseded, what do we call that? A miracle. What do we call it when God's moral law is set aside? A sin. <laughs> you got two categories when God's law is violated. It's either a miracle or it's a sin. I want you to think about sin appropriately. Most of the universe obeys God without fail. Anything that doesn't obey God is judged. Angels were judged immediately and have no opportunity for salvation. Their doom is sure. God is delayed casting them into the abyss to use as a foil, a backdrop in our lives so that we might see the glory of Christ. We are the ones that God has chosen to provide a rescue. He's chosen to, to provide a means to recover not only what was lost in the garden, but in many ways more than what we can even imagine. Beyond the splendor of Eden, heaven is much better than the garden of Eden. We don't realize the horror of sin because we don't fully contemplate the glory from which it separates us. This is what Greg immediately jumped to. <laughs> if we fully comprehended the glory of God, and this is why those angels that fell, they had seen the glory of God. And when they fell, there was, there was no, there was no recourse, instant judgment. Sin blocks our experience of God, our knowing him. Sin deadens us for the very purposes for which we were made, to know and love and worship God, and to be known and to be loved and be cherished by God. Sin stops this. Without faith in Christ to receive a sacrifice for their sin, people will never experience the greatest love, the abiding presence, the endless peace, the ultimate purpose, the glorious delight, the faithful promises, the fullness of life that God designed for mankind. Without faith in Christ, people are desperately blind to his blessings. 
They don't see the big deal about their sin because they don't appreciate the glory of God. Think about what you might enjoy the most. The person that you love the most, the action or duty for which you find the greatest service and, and honor and value. Then imagine something that would block you from and prevent you from receiving and enjoying that particular blessing. That's what sin does. Not only to us, but but also to God. See, God is angry over our sin that separated us from him. He's offended. And I'm not saying that God has a need, but for the sake of his name and his glory, he gave his one and only son to come and rescue his people. In this way, the spectacular love and grace, mercy and kindness of Jesus is put on full display. How would we know the mercy of Jesus if he never came to rescue? This We get to see Jesus' grace. We get to see his, his humility, his kindness towards us. If God was pleased about our sin, Jesus would never have come to save us. 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Open our eyes, Lord. Right? We just sang it. Open our eyes. Beholding the glory of Lord transforms us. If we made beholding the glory of the Lord our chief aim, the horror of sin would become more and more apparent to us. And likely we wouldn't fall so easily into sin. Satan knows us well, so he works to keep the final result of sin hidden from us. He works to keep us from seeing the Lord Jesus. His desire to steal, kill, and destroy plays throughout accusation and deception as he entices mankind to follow him into a rebellion. How does he do this? By introducing doubt about believing and understanding God's words, just as he did with Eve. Satan knew that if sin was presented in his true light, then Eve may not have been, may have resisted him, been terrified. Eve maybe would have seen the foolishness of sin, so Satan twisted God's words to attempt her to doubt what God had said, then to question what he had said, and then to actually overrule God's authority and forsake her relationship with God. Even today, it's really easy to introduce doubt. Satan just tries to hide the full effect of sin by presenting it as less than it truly is. He says, did God say you can't eat of any tree? How selfish of God. You know, a judgment of God's intent. He says, did God say you can't eat of any tree? How selfish. Did God say you would die? Well, that couldn't be. And I thought about this. By the way, had anything ever died when Satan said this to Eve? <laughs> maybe, maybe, the de- maybe, maybe Satan himself had died in the sense of being separated from God and all the demons, you know. Even today, he says, it's just a little bit of pride, a little worldliness, a little sexuality, a, a little drunkenness. It's just a very little sin. Don't, don't be troubled. You can commit it without any danger to your soul. No one will ever notice. You can do it and you will feel good. And Satan entices. Satan also calls us to relabel what is clearly sin. Calling what is evil good and, and what is good, call it evil. He presents things like covetousness 
as good management and drunkenness as good fellowship. You get the idea? He relabels sin to make it sound good. But no matter how the true nature of sin is disguised, it is still just as filthy and vile as a when it's exposed. A poisonous pill is just as poisonous when it's wrapped with gold foil. A wolf is still a wolf, even cloaked with sheepskin. And Satan knows that small sins pave the way for greater sins to follow. By yielding to lesser sins, we line up ourselves to be lured by greater sins. Small sins can multiply easily, rapidly, until they suffocate and trample your soul. It is a sad thing to cast aside God's amazing abundance to gain a little trifle. By doing so, we walk the path leading to the destruction of of our souls in hell. Sin is our most fierce enemy. We cannot forget that. Yeah, Satan is an enemy to our soul, but only because we sin. Sin is our most fierce enemy. It's always evil. But sometimes the blessing of prosperity can lead us not to worry about sin, especially the evil nature of it. So in his great mercy, God sometimes lets affliction and suffering wake us up and keep us alert from the dangers and evils of sin. Then this question is sometimes asked, why did God impose the death penalty not only on Adam and Eve, but on the whole human race just because they ate the wrong piece of fruit? You know, you can ask this question in a lot of ways to kind of, why is there all this for this little bitty trifle? Doesn't this seem really excessive? Surely their disobedience was too small a thing to incur such a huge penalty. What makes sin so terrible that the punishment is eternal death for everyone? The answer begins in having a right understanding of what was involved in their disobedience as well as in the holiness of God. Let's consider the actual command found in Genesis 1, 16 and 17 that Adam and Eve violated. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Why did God give this restraint? It's not hard to see that this is a pretty simple test of Adam's love for God. There was just one action that Adam was forbidden to do. Out of all the fruit-bearing trees in the garden, we don't know how many that was. Whatever number you pick, it could be bigger than that. (laughs) Out of all those fruit-bearing trees in the garden from which he could eat, he could not partake of this one specific tree. It seemed that God purposed to make a modest test of Adam's obedience. Since Adam was a free moral agent before God, he was given a choice to make. By exercising that choice, he would show whether he was prepared to trust and obey God and precipitate his love for all life or to go his own way. At this time, Adam was in a state of neutrality. He was able to choose and therefore prove either a faithful obedience to God or an evil disobedience to God. It's like Adam was on probation until he was proven faithful that he had passed the test. 
Was it a fair to God to test Adam like this? Of course. God created Adam and Eve as free moral beings. Not as his own son. Yeah. They're free moral beings. They're not programmed robots. He didn't force a dog to make this choice. He asked Adam to make the choice. And he didn't. But if they'd been able to, if they'd been able to do as they pleased, but had not known right and wrong, had not had right and wrong defined for them, they would not have been in a free position to choose. If you make a choice, but you don't know what's going to happen in either case, that's really not a good position to be in. That wasn't Adams. He knew what was going to happen if he made the wrong choice. Because truth lets you decide correctly. If you don't have the truth about decision, a decision, then whatever you decide has no meaning, no purpose, no bearing. You got to have the truth about the situation. God has every right to set the, the rules, rules that proceed out of for who he is. The test, this test was such a privilege for Adam to prove his love for God. Why? Because as we've seen today, does not, God does not permit any disobedience from compliance with his design and order in all creation. No helium atom ever disobeys God. No ounce of gold ever disobeys God. No tree, no bush, no fish, no whale, nothing disobeys God. But Adam had a choice. We need to see also that God told Adam not to eat of the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, not the tree of good and evil. There's a big difference. God is not the author of evil. <clears throat> there was no evil tree in the garden. Adam was not to experiment with evil to see what it was like. He was warned of the penalty if he did. He knew what the result of disobedience would be. Adam had the freedom to choose and could have trusted that God, who had made him and gave him his instructions, would know better than the tempter what was going to be best for him. But God's best is always and only available by believing and obeying God's word. It's only God's best is only available by believing God's word and obeying God's word. I'll ask it again. Was it just for God to give so great a penalty as death for all mankind for such a simple sin? I've had this question asked me before. Yes. Again, Adam was the first man, the head of all men, all mankind. He was given a perfect garden, provided food, granted a companion especially crafted for him, assigned meaningful work, and enjoyed a living relationship with Almighty God. The stage was set for Adam's victory. Everything was lined out in perfection. You just needed Adam's moral choice to obey God. Victory was right there. But he failed. And now, all people today are descendants of Adam. Look around. We're all made of the same stuff as Adam was made. 
His sin has become our sin. Had we been given the same opportunity, we would have made the same choice as he did. God's small restraint posed the best test of obedience. It demonstrated that God had the right to make demands of Adam and to expect obedience. Had the sin been a major crime, that could have drawn our attention away from his act of disobedience to the terrible nature of the sin. See, the, the nature of the sin wasn't terrible. What was terrible was the act of willful disobedience. The fact that God announced beforehand the penalty for disobedience to his command shows that Adam was not left wondering about its importance. He knew how important it was. What's more, if God ordains such a penalty for this seemingly minor offense, how seriously then does God regard all other sins, including what we call big sins? How serious are they before God? Look, the motive for Adam and Eve's disobedience wasn't hunger. They had food available for another thousand trees if they had wanted it. They didn't sin because they were hungry. Their motivation, it says in Genesis 3, 5, was to be as God. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. That was their ambition. If such a simple command cannot be followed, would Adam have passed a more severe test? Never. Little sins reveal that we are willing to rebel against God even in the smallest matters. It was just a little sin means you're willing to disobey God for a trifle. You see the evil in that? And you see the evil in that? Even parenting tells us that kids are likely to express rebellion in the small things as the big ones. You'd understand if your child complained when you asked them to paint the whole house. But asking to take out the trash, a minor task that takes more than a couple of minutes, still elicits rolling eyes and grumbling words. Is there any good reason to complain against something so minor? Have you ever done it? Never. The child complains to make the point that he doesn't want to obey. This response against so small a request proves that he's in a state of rebellion against his parents. Now, once that rebellion reaches fullest extent, there is no matter too small for him to rebel against. The Bible teaches us that as humans, we are all in a state of rebellion against God. Even we who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ find ourselves torn between competing loyalties. Though we're committed to God, we are still committed to the flesh. We submit to God and yet we still resist him. We still rebel against him. We are both saints and sinners. Our sinfulness is expressed not only in our desire to break God's greatest rules, but in our willingness to break even his smallest ones. And this is the utter horror of sin. We're willing to break even the smallest commands of God. This proves our heart is so wicked that there's no area of life in which we won't rebel against God. 
Since Adam's sin was a matter of his will, not his appetite, it proves to be an act of anarchy against God's righteous government. Just like the sins we commit today, sin exposes our hearts. Sin is an affront to God, his holiness, his rule, his authority, and his love. The measure of God's wrath against sin is the measure of his holiness. You think his wrath is great, you should see his holiness. And the measure of the penalty, death, is the measure of the enormity of the offense. Willful rejection of God's authority. Sin is evil realized. This is the horror of sin. Now, this is a, not a good time to end the message. <laughs> because we're, we're, it looks like we're standing at the cliff and we're looking down to a bottomless pit. Or maybe we feel like we're already in the pit and there's no hope for us. The fact of the matter is, Jesus has taken all of our sin upon himself. All of the sin that was recorded against us, that God has recorded since the day we were born until today, if we believe in Christ, all of that sin has been taken off of our record and put on Christ's record. And he has borne the punishment for our sin. And then all of the righteous acts of obedience that Christ performed, he's transcribed them over onto our record. This is the most wonderful, powerful, releasing, freeing thing that could ever exist. Our record was put on Christ. He suffered the punishment for it. Christ put, by faith, Christ puts his record of perfection on us. Now, I have other thoughts about the horrors that result from sin. And I'm just going to read them now, but sometime in the future, you may hear another message on some of these things. Because they're working their way into me. Why sin is so terrible. I just want to read them. Because why? Because I want to hate sin. <clears throat> and um, I want you to hate sin too. And I want to leave, love Jesus for taking all of my sin upon himself. And you want to love Jesus too. For taking all of your sin upon himself. Let's join the fight. Let's rejoin the fight to put sin to death in our lives. Why? Because sin causes us to reject God's authority to rule over us, which unleashes guilt into our soul. Sin causes us to dishonor God's holiness and glory, bringing shame into our hearts and minds. Sin causes us to insult God's word and wisdom, and we become ignorant of his truth and life. Sin causes us to blaspheme God's righteousness and perfection and causes much evil. Sin causes us to violate God's purity and character, which corrupts our souls and our bodies. Sin causes us to forsake glory and to be sentenced to God's divine condemnation and wrath. Sin causes us to be separated from relationship with God and the joy of eternal life with him. Sin causes us to have our consciences deadened to the conviction and correction of the Holy Spirit. 
Sin destroys the dignity of man, having been made in God's image, but now shattered and broken. Sin fills the earth with pain and evil and fear and tragedy and misery and death. Sin required Jesus to suffer death and wrath on our behalf to rescue us. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Please realize with me this morning the horror of sin. Through every thought, evil thought, word, and deed, sin separates us further and further from God. Jesus came to fulfill all of God's holy commands and did it perfectly. He is holy and just, but has taken the sin of believers upon himself. And by faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus records his holy perfection and righteousness to us, which enables us to stand in the presence of God. If somebody asks you, what's the big deal about sin? Give this some thought. Was it right for God to have such a huge penalty for such a little sin? Could you answer that question? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The fact that we sin over trivial matters means that none of God's word do we have holy, hold as holy. I've been thinking about it, you know, okay, I get older, well, I don't have this problem anymore and this problem anymore. And this problem, you know, I've kind of won the battles for these things and then God would say, well, how about this, this, and this? Are you serious about that? There's just little, little, little things. Mine are so minor compared to Bill. There you go. <laughs> I, I agree, except I've switched, switched the names. <laughs> it's not our favorite topic, but it's our worst enemy. How do you go through life without putting your finger on your worst enemy and striving to defeat that? Pray with me. Jesus, we we stand at the cliff here and we look at the horror and the abyss of our sin. Lord, we just stand amazed that you would take it upon yourself. And Lord, I pray that you'd expose in our hearts what is evil what is not like you, what resists your authority and your power and your righteous wisdom and rule in our lives. And Lord, we would believe and obey what you have said. Help us, Lord, to be a a wise counselor to others. Help us, Lord, to be a a vessel of of your wisdom and your grace and your mercy. Lord, it's, it's, it's not for anything that we've done. It's because of your grace demonstrated towards us in Christ. Lord, to know Christ is to is to know who can solve this issue, this problem, who can redeem us from our sins, and who has, by faith, redeemed us from every sin, so that we might now stand in your presence and see you. So, Lord Jesus, I pray that you take these words here this morning and uh, help us to remember, Lord, what we should remember and put into practice what we should put in practice. 
For we pray this, Lord, in your name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.